Tonight's New Testament reading, the book of Acts, chapter 21, verses 17 through 26. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me as we pray? Oh God, we thank you that you haven't left us in the dark. You haven't just created us and left us to chance with no voice. But you've spoken. Uh, we see the world that you've made, but more so you've spoken your words. Ancient wisdom, life-giving wisdom, we all need it so desperately tonight. And so Jesus, feed your people. Bring us new life. In Christ's name, amen. So, um, think for a second about something you wish you were free to do, right? Something that you were free to do. Maybe you wish, you know, I, I remember when I was younger, this is, you guys probably don't relate to this, maybe you, but I, I, was always, I always wished that I could eat as much cereal as I wanted. Like, I, I would look forward to maybe, like, if my mom went out of the house and went to the store, I could eat more cereal. You know, just no one would see me. You know, it's free that, you know, something to eat or something to do or something to hang out with these friends or maybe to pursue this kind of, like, career, something you've always Freedom. America is very much about encouraging us to find our freedom and do our freedom, Right? But there's a kind of freedom that God brings into your life 
that's not like what we usually see. And I, I heard a quote this week, a mentor of mine sent a quote yesterday, and I was like, yeah, that's a good example. This is what he said about his, uh, he was quoting a guy named Jack Miller, who's now in heaven. I discovered I wasn't as free as God intended. Now, this is how he explains freedom. Free to live unnoticed. Free to repent with joy. Free to confess my sins, but not the sins of others. Free to love people who offer me no advantage. That's a different sort of freedom, isn't it? That's a freedom we don't see a lot in our days and culture. Maybe another word to say it is it's a flexibility to love people. Now, uh, as you get older, flexibility becomes harder. Some of you know that. Like, you know, if you are in your teens, you probably don't think about stretching. I guess if you're in a sport, you stretch because you have to in a sport. But you're going to hit a, a time in your life where you have to stretch just to kind of move. You know, just to be able to kind of like, how do I stretch enough to be able to, to move? So there's a flexibility we want to have to be able to do stuff, right? But there's also a flexibility from things. And one thing is flexibility from being inflexible, from being too rigid about things, of being too tight about things. You think about certain characters like uh, Professor Umbridge. No flexibility, right, if you know that story. Or uh, Inspector Keto. Anybody watch Man in the High Castle? Anybody? It's what's hard today. It's hard to do illustrations today because no one, <laughs> no one watches the same thing. Nobody watches the same thing. So there you have it. You'll have to trust me. He's not a flexible guy. But you can think about your own life, right? You can think about, uh, our, maybe it's like I'm not very flexible with my personal habits. You know, when I, the, the way I am as a roommate or the way I am as a brother and sister, there's certain things that I don't like people to, to ask me to do. Or maybe it's flexibilities on your views on certain issues, right? Stuff that's happening in the culture, religious, political. Maybe it's flexibility in your demands upon people. People feel like, man, you know, there is not a whole lot of grace of flexibility with you. Take heart, because if there was anybody who could be called inflexible, it was the Apostle Paul. One of the most inflexible people you could ever meet. We've studied his story, and we've seen that he was so rigidly committed to his view of God and the Bible, he would throw you in jail or have you executed if you didn't agree with him. That's pretty bad inflexibility. I read an article this week, and it was interesting because it was talking about extreme groups. And Paul would have been in an extreme group back then. But it said this, Extreme group identities and ideologies are often characterized by a tendency to categorize the world in people in an inflexible manner, right? That's part of really what drives extreme groups. And yet, what we see in this passage 
is Paul acting in this great flexibility. And I know both the passages we read have these sort of like ritual sides. You're probably like, what? Why are we having these passages read? Hopefully I'm going to be able to explain that. But ultimately it has to do with you've got this guy that was not flexible at all and he becomes generous. He, he develops what, this is the idea I want to put before us, the grace of flexibility, gospel flexibility, a flexibility that only the grace of God can give you and produce in you. And so uh, I want to look at how that happens in his life and our lives, but more so why, why it happens, why he's motivated. So first of all, how does it happen? So we've been reading through the book of Acts. We're at the part of the story where Paul goes to Jerusalem to deliver a collection for churches that are struggling, money, but also to give a missionary report. He hasn't been there for uh, close to, it was probably six years he hasn't been there. And God has done so much. I mean, thousands and thousands of people converted. People that were Jewish that became followers of Jesus, those who were of pagan uh, nation, them following Jesus, bunches of churches established, all these things that are going on that he wants to be able to report on, cities that were reached, and he's responded with, there's praise and glory. Everybody's so happy to hear the news. After they get done rejoicing, James, the brother of Jesus, who's an apostle, he's now a leader of the church in Jerusalem, he pulls him aside and says, listen, you know, there's some rumors. You know, when anybody reports a rumor, you know it's not going to be good, right? It's rarely any good. And he says, the rumor is that when you're out there teaching and preaching, you're saying, listen, you don't need to pay attention to Moses and all the customs that Israel has done. Don't even worry about that. Now, it was a false rumor. It was a false rumor, but it's out there. And it has enough traction to it that eventually it'll come up again and it'll put Paul in prison. So it's a serious rumor. Now, what it says in verse 21 is telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. Forsake Moses and customs. Those two words are really important. Forsake Moses, Moses and customs. Okay? And by customs, I don't mean like going through the airport. So Moses. When you talk about Moses in the Bible, they're talking about the first five books of the Bible, right? They're talking about what's called the Pentateuch. And in the five books of the Bible, there are a bunch of laws. And uh, you can break those laws into three categories. One is you got laws about like feasts and holy days and sacrifices and foods that you eat and shouldn't eat. Those are religious or ceremonial laws. And then there were laws that were civil laws because Israel was a nation. And so laws like, what do you do if someone has an inheritance and it goes to the wrong person? Or what do you do if someone damages your livestock that you use to make money? All these laws about that. And then there were the moral laws. Those are the laws that are summarized in the Ten Commandments. But with those laws, like any laws, there were thousands and thousands of customs and traditions that developed around those laws. You know, the same thing happens with us today, right? I, when I was a kid, um, you know, I rode a school bus, and they, they would always, um, uh, or maybe this would happen in the classroom, right? Uh, there would be fire drills. 
And uh, so there was a law in my state, you had to do these fire drills once a year. But the way we did them was, the teacher would say, line up in a line, walk in a single file, and don't talk. Those were customs, right? Those were traditions. The law didn't say you had to do that. So there's just stuff we do. Or for instance, uh, right now, we've got playoffs. We've got the NBA playoffs and the hockey playoffs. And uh, hockey, have, uh, hockey has this like, unique thing that happens in the postseason. After the end of a series, the players and the coaches actually line up and shake hands with each other. It doesn't happen in any other sports. That's not a rule of hockey. That's a custom, right? So there are all these customs and traditions that would happen. And so the question comes up, can you imagine all these people from outside of Israel that were never Jewish are now becoming followers of Jesus and everybody is kind of in the same room and the question comes up, well, well, you know, Israel was first, Jesus came through Israel. What are these guys going to have to do? Are they going to need to become Jewish to be faithful followers? Like what, what do they have to do, these Gentiles? That was a big question, a big deal. Because, you know, laws and customs, basically, it's how you do life. This was a big deal. How are we going to do life together? And also, the question was, if God's holiness, if God commanded these laws, and God doesn't change, and his holiness doesn't change, why don't they have to follow certain things? Enter Jesus. Jesus shows up, and uh, he teaches this famous sermon called Sermon on the Mount. Right. And on the Sermon on the Mount, he tackles this issue. He does two things. First of all, he says, I didn't come to cancel the law of Moses. I didn't come to cancel it. But then he would say, you have heard Moses said, but I say to you. He's basically saying, I, I, I am going to expand and deepen. I have authority to go further than Moses. But he has two things together, right? He says, I'm not abolishing the law, but also... I have authority, I've come to do this, I've come to expand it. And what he does is essentially say this, all those laws and customs were serving a singular purpose. A singular purpose that centers on me, Jesus. But those laws and customs, Jesus would say, basically were serving three purposes. One, they were trying to teach the Israelites that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Meaning this, if you're going to be in the presence of God Almighty, you have to be holy. All those laws about you got to wash your hands, or you can't eat this, or you got to do that. God is holy if you're going to be in God's presence. Now, the reason, and I had this, uh, that vow, Nazarite vow thing we're going to talk about, I had that read first in part because when modern people read that stuff, we go, that's really silly and primitive. This idea that there would have to be all these things we do to kind of figure out that we, we have to do this to be in God's presence. And that because modern people tend to see God as a supersized version of themselves. Modern people tend to say, I'll enter God's presence however I want, whenever I want, in the way that I want to. Ancient people didn't think that way at all. In fact, for modern people, it might be good to say, uh, 
your relationships don't work that way, right? I mean, we decide our friend groups on basically who we think is acceptable. If someone is like unapologetically deceitful and violent and racist and abusive, they're not going to be in your friendship group, are they? You're going to say, you can't hang with me. And so God, does God not have the right to say, there's a requirement to be in my presence? And so, um, and by the way, the same thing happens when people like talk about the universe. The universe is just like an echo of whatever they think, right? So we got to watch that. We got to ask ourselves: Am I just kind of, am I just kind of living in my own world, like literally? And I'm going to die in my own world in my head. So first of all, you got to be holy to be in the presence of God. The second one is when holy, by that standard of holiness. None of us can live up to that standard. We can't even live up to our own standards, right? I mean, the standards we hold other people to, we can't even live up to those. And this is important. Because we know deep down that we can't live up to that standard, something happens in us. We understand that we have a righteous deficit. We have a holiness deficit. Our bank account is in the negative when it comes to God. And so we do two things. We try to cover up and we try to compensate. One, we try to cover up by pretending. And this is what Jesus got after the religious leaders about saying, you know, you're hypocrites because you really, you pretend. You pretend to be righteous and holy, but you're not. But the other thing we do is we seek to compensate for the lack of righteousness and we do that by just trying to like live up to another standard. Now, it might be a religious standard you're trying to live up to to make you feel like you're accepted and righteous. It might be the Washington, D.C. yard sign standard, right? If you live in D.C., you know what I mean. You walk by and it says, in this house we, and you're like, man, I don't know if I can go in that house, right? right? Well, I don't know if I'm going to do everything right. But we all have those yard signs. You might not put one up, but we all do, Right? We all have got these standards and customs and things. So in our sin, we, 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 we're minimizing the fact that we can't live up to it, and then we exaggerate the fact that we think we are living up to it. It's a terrible place to live. With a righteousness deficit trying to spend your life hiding and measuring up. It's a terrible way to live. And for you, you know, again, it, it may be like I do that through my job. Or I do it by trying to be great on a sports team. Or I do it by trying to like, have the body that seems perfect to everybody. Or I do it by trying to like, please my parents. or please, Whatever it is, all of us have this stuff that we do. And it's a hard place to live in. But here's the key I want to get to. That's what's really behind the customs and tradition. That's what's behind the inflexibility. You see... If you need that stuff to survive, if you, need that, if you need to live in a certain way so you feel righteous and good about yourself, you will hold on until, until you have to die, right? Because it's all you got. You know, be someone like, you know, all I have is my reputation in my work. All I have are my good looks. You know, all I have is how smart I am. All I have is my family's name. All I have is my, my cultural racial power. 
my position of power and majority. All I have is whatever it would be, we cling to it. You can't be flexible. You can't release it. This is why Jesus was so destabilizing to people. Because as I said, you know, now that, you, now that we see that behind all these customs and lifestyles and customs and all that stuff that was happening was this thing, he began to shake it. He began to shake it. And people weren't like, you know, on the surface maybe going, well, you're messing with tradition here. And they're like, no, you're messing with my life. You're messing with like how, how I feel good about myself. You're messing with the status I have. You're messing with my finances. You're messing with my place of power. That's what it, destabilizing. But the third thing those laws and traditions were trying to teach us were that God longs to be gracious. <laughs> he finds us in this deficit, and he doesn't zap us. He longs to be gracious, so longs it that he will travel from glory and eternity and heaven so he can be us and walk in our place. This is how much he longs to be gracious. The Christian story teaches that God, how much will God come after you? How much would he do it? He'll come all the way to earth. He'll become like you and me. He'll become a baby. He'll die. And so even those laws of sacrifice back in Israel showed that. The fact that God let there be sacrifices he was trying to teach them, listen, I want to forgive sin. I want to be gracious. But as Jesus shows up, he teaches us something, right? He teaches us that holiness is not just this outward conformity to all these rules and customs. Holiness is actually love. Holiness is compassion. Holiness is kindness. Holiness is moral beauty. But he also invites us to stop pretending. Did you notice, if you've read the Gospels, that people stopped hiding around Jesus? They knew they could stop hiding around him. Sinners knew that they could come toward him. People that wanted to hide, they stayed far away. Because he could see through you. Talk about x-ray vision. He could see through you. But man, if you came and just said, I'm done hiding, and I'm not righteous, he loved it. He invited you. But most of all, what we see in Jesus is God's grace is so much bigger than anybody ever thought. When God revealed himself to Moses, he said, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. They knew that about God. They knew that God would be gracious, but no one in their mind had the idea of how gracious he would be. That he would come and assume the place of sinners, that he would be an atonement for sin, that he would humble and sacrifice himself, that he would come after individuals die and secure their salvation, that he would solve their righteousness problem. No one imagined grace that big. And that's the gospel. And that's what got hold of Paul. I'm wrapping this around. Going to talk about flexibility, because I know we're kind of like going a little bit way around. And then I want to hit one last point. So let's delve into Paul's story just a little bit deeper. 
If you go to the book of Philippians, chapter 3, Paul confesses that his life before he met Jesus was a life where he was trying to build his righteousness upon his family name, upon his achievements, upon the titles that he had. This was the basis of it. But then he came to understand Jesus in a way where his acceptance and his standing and his love were all of God, all of grace. And that grace enabled Paul to let things go. The old Paul would have never, ever been willing to be flexible about anything. But because he understands the gospel and he understood all that part about the law, it gave him a flexibility. He, you know, sometimes one, one of the things the grace of God begins to do in your life, it helps you to like choose your battles. It helps you to like say, this is really important and this isn't that important. Right? It does this work in our life where we're like, you know, I'm just, I'm getting like too upset about this issue. And we all have issues like that. You know, the ones where you kind of start going off and everybody in the room's like, ah, you know. And the problem is, is it gets broadcast culturally and we basically have a culture in a world of people that are just really upset about crazy things. Sometimes upset about the right things. And so the grace of God begins to make you go, I don't have to die on this hill because my righteousness isn't attached up in this issue. This cultural, this religious argument, this political argument, this whatever it would be, this family argument. I don't have to win. I've already won. Paul, and it's not like Paul just became passive and like easygoing. I mean, he was a guy that became more determined. He became more ambitious and goal-centered. But now it was out of gratitude and joy, not out of hatred. The second thing we see is he gained a flexibility to serve people. So James comes and asks for not too small of a thing. He says, okay, would you do this, Paul? We got these four guys, and they're doing that Nazarite vow thing that I, you know, had read out of the book of Numbers, I think it was. He said, they're doing this vow, and would you join them publicly in that vow, and would you pay for the expenses of it so everybody would see that you're not, you know, totally disrespecting Moses and disrespecting him? Would you do that? Now, you could imagine... Any one of us may be answering, or we feel it this way. Listen, I'm not in the wrong here. They're in the wrong. This is just going to sort of, you know, co-enable them to keep being wrong. They're bullies. Their cultural, cultural analysis is way off. I'm not going to do it. I mean, I got rights. This is my reputation on the line. This is my, all these things. The old Paul would have said it. I find myself kind of thinking like that. You know what Paul says? Yep, I'll do it. I'll do it. He gives us a little insight into that in Corinthians. What was in his mind? Why would he do it? For though I am free from all, you know, I don't have to do that stuff, I've made myself a servant to all. 
To the Jews, I become as a Jew. Curious, because he is a Jew. But his identity has changed so much, he actually sees himself as, in a sense, like transcending that. That's part of his identity. To the Jew, I became, to the ones under the law, meaning the people that are having issues with these traditions and stuff, I'll become like one under the law. And to the ones outside the law, the Gentiles, I'll even kind of be like that so they feel more comfortable. I've become all things to all people. You see what the grace of God does in his life. He, he stops thinking about his individual freedom, his individual right to do this or that. And he goes, you know, I think I can be flexible to serve people. You know, I know this, I, I know this uh, particular issue bothers someone, so, you know, it's not, it's not, I don't have to win that. I don't have to. He knows that uh, maybe there's a particular kind of way that they're comfortable culturally. I, I'm going to enter into that. Not patronizing them. We'll see that in a second. But, you know, I, it's not too important to me to love people. It's not too important to me to serve. This is what the gospel does. And so why does he do it? Last point. I left out a few of the words from that Corinthian thing. And this is what's driving him in Acts. He says, I become all things to all men, that I might win more of them. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them its blessing. Paul is desperate that people would know that Jesus, who he knows, nothing is more important to me than people know this love, this grace, this man, this glory. Nothing's more important to me than that. He so valued that. He wanted people to be saved. He wanted people to come to know Jesus, to repent of their sins and come and know that Savior. And because that was his driving force, he was like, all the other stuff is small potatoes. Yeah, I'm not going to do anything that basically, you know, I'm not going to do anything that breaks the law, even though a lot of people thought Jesus was breaking the law all the time. That's what happens, right? You're going to get accused. If you try to become all things to all men, you will get accused of breaking the law of God. This idea of flexibility. Now, let me say a little bit of a qualifying word here. I think this is a good quote. The more a gap opens up between the culture, the culture of the surrounding society, the more important it is to know how to bridge it. But the concern must never be to prove how cosmopolitan and sophisticated and flexible we are. The point isn't to be, hey, you know, I'm flexible, I'm likable like you. The aim must be to win as many as possible. Cultural sensitivity and flexibility must become tools to enable us to address the challenges of cross-cultural evangelism wisely and courageously rather than ends in and of themselves. So, we find ourselves in this space. Um, where um, 
He's given us this gospel and this salvation. And uh, all of us need to ask this question. Uh, what is preventing me? What is preventing me from entering into those spaces that I normally wouldn't, right? Maybe it's culturally or racially. You know, where am I like, where, maybe my righteousness is that. And I, and I will say, I think it looks this way in a church. We, we are a church that wants to be a cross-cultural church, not because it's sophisticated, because it's biblical. Because the end is one panethnic bride of every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's what Paul was gunning for. That's what he was after. That's what that whole thing was about. And it runs throughout the New Testament. There was a lot at stake here. Who did Jesus come to save? And I, I have to tell you that... Um, I got saved when I was in high school, okay? I came to know Jesus in high school. But it's been in these last 10 or 15 years that have really been some of the sweetest to me because salvation is a big word in the Bible, right? The Bible says you have been saved, you are being saved, you will be saved. And it's shalom. It's, it's well-being in every direction, and I'll tell you, for me, it has been believers that are not like me, not like my personality, not like my race, not like my culture, that have moved towards me. They've been that bridge towards me and shown that flexibility. And, you know, man, it's just been so sweet. And I know many of you know, us in this community have that testimony. It's, sometimes it's admonishing, sometimes it's exposing, right? But this, this idea of like, you know, I will serve. I will, there's nothing that I can't lay down for you. Because I, I want you to know him and I want to be who he died for. I want to be who he died for. Let's pray.